Hey, everybody, to Talk Purpose and Truth. It's Kim and Eden. Hi, Eden. Hello, Kim. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Excited for today. And um, how are you doing? I'm too. I'm excited. I like what we're about to talk about. This is a specialty of mine and, you know, kind of like a passion for me. So um, I'm excited to see her, our guest's point of view on this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that, um, so our, our expert, before I introduce her, um, I want to just talk about why we're doing this episode. So we've had people on the show, including Judy Salgado Thurston and We've had um, the recent episode on fentanyl and other episodes where people have talked about their husbands taking their own lives and things like that. And Mm -hmm. we haven't really specifically had an episode on grief and the different types of grief and how to handle or overcome or get through grief or anything like that. Um, And so we just thought, you know what, we want to find somebody who is an expert at this, among other interesting things. And Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about how grief is experienced in many different ways and some of our own examples with that as well. And I was telling our guest that I was walking through the park like a month ago and all of a sudden her name popped into my head. And I don't even think we've ever met. I think we just are Facebook connections and have mutual friends. And out of nowhere, her name popped into my head. And that happens to me sometimes with intuition and the message was like, contact her. It's really important. So I looked at her Facebook and she happens to be an expert on grief, among other things we'll talk about. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what Eden and I were just saying. We wanted a guest on this. So I asked her or blessed that she could do it. So I, I love how the universe works. Uh-huh. We just so, put it, I just ask for what you want, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with, with the belief that you'll get it and the vision yeah. you'll get. It. So, um, okay. So Dr. Gretchen Kubaki is a health psychologist, grief expert, and she is a best-selling author and speaker. And she has, she'll tell us, but she has books available on Amazon, among other places. And very excited to talk more about everything she does. So welcome, Dr. Gretchen. Thank you. And did I say your <laughs> Pardon? Did I say it correctly, your last name? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. That's why everyone calls me Gretchen. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, that's a cool name. So tell us your journey with your career and purpose and some of your experiences that led you to what you do. Okay. Um, I always had an interest in psychology. My mom was a psych major in college. And so when I was a kid, I'd read her books and just found them fascinating. Didn't do that for a career initially. But when I was in my 30s, I went back to grad school and became licensed as a psychologist and certified bereavement facilitator. And what led me there was having a lot of a complex family with a lot of trauma in it. I lost both my father and my brother to suicide at separate Mm -hmm. times. And so I developed a specialty in grief and loss, particularly what we call complicated bereavement and specifically with suicide loss. But I also work with a lot of homicide loss, multiple miscarriages, other forms of really difficult loss. And I have um, always had a keen interest in health issues as well. I was kind of one of those weird kids, like reading the Merck manual for fun. Uh, You're not weird or I'm (laughs) weird too, because I did the same thing. Awesome. Okay. (laughs) Um, 
so I was always fascinated with medical stuff, but I was not great at science classes. And so I found that I could do health psychology where I get to deal with health content and get to read and study health content and work with people on health problems in the psychological context. And a lot of people have chronic or invisible illnesses and or they're dealing with at this point a lot of rare illnesses or individuals who have multiple chronic overlapping illnesses but they and so there's a lot of psychological struggle around all of that so that's how I came into my career okay and how can you how can one grieve a loss that's not well it can either be the loss of a loved one or other losses like as if they they're ill a chronic illness having a chronic illness um or the the loss of a relationship uh how does explain how you how you grieve that and how you work through it what are your tips sure first of all most people think that there is a set path for grieving, but it's not like we, we'd like to think there's kind of you start at the bottom and you go straight up to the top and then you're great again. What really happens is it kind of looks like a mess, yeah. right? And you have all the feelings all the time, some feelings, none of the time. Sometimes you're just flat and blank. So what I like to do is try and help people kind of establish where identifying what their goals and their values are in life after the loss and then we can start orienting towards choosing activities that support living along the way there's a lot of time spent going through the things that are scary discouraging the real losses right so sometimes people have lost abilities they may have lost body parts they've lost family members they've lost job opportunities because of an illness um, with death you may have lost social standing or certain roles in your life so any of those things may be different for different people and we go through what is highest priority what seems most troubling kind of getting stable again and then figuring out how to maximize living through orienting around the goals that are important to them okay so it's not necessarily forgetting the person who you lost or you know, trying to erase them from your mind or erase the situation. Absolutely not. Hope with it. No. One of the things that people sometimes are scared about coming into grief therapy is that they will forget the person that they lost. Mm -hmm. It is not possible. Yeah. It is not possible to actually forget the person that you've lost. And that I think is really important reassurance because we're not really taught how, particularly in American culture, in white Christian oriented culture process of dealing with death and dying. And we don't have a lot of cultural support for actually identifying our feelings or honoring people in the way that we want to honor them mm -hmm. when we've lost them. So I really like to work with people's cultural traditions and maybe to introduce ideas about things that they can do to actually have an active memorial of their loved one. Well, I love that. It's like it's like speaking or or behaving and acting into one's listenings or one's you know one's alignment. Yeah, yeah. Every everyone has a little bit of a different grief process. The thing that also comes up a lot is there are many traumas that people go through in life. Not all of us, but a lot of us. Depending on what the situation is with how the person died, 
what the process of their dying was? You know, was it something like when my grandmother died of a quiet little heart attack at 95, I was sad for a little bit, but it was okay, right? When my father died of suicide unexpectedly when I was 13 years old, I was not okay, mm -hmm. right? So we have to really look at what the, what the individual specifics are. And it may be something where one loss triggers a whole bunch of other release of trauma or grief, other losses, other things that are sad in that person's life. And so then we have to deal with all those things too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what about, I think it's really interesting because I never knew until I went through it myself, when you're having chronic, I don't even know if I'd call it health issues, but it's affecting your health. Like I was having a lot of hormonal issues and now I'm finding that it might be even in breast implant issues, whatever it might be. But where within the last five years, I basically have missed like a year and a half's worth of activities mm -hmm. because of having to cancel. And when I went to a therapist about it, they're like, you're grieving, you're grieving that lost time. And so mm -hmm. what do you suggest for someone? Because I know a lot of people now, it seems like now I'm knowing more people going through similar stuff where they're also, and now I'm able to go, you're grieving the time, you know, or what you said, lack of not being able to do something. Yeah. So dealing with that, I think does require kind of a different orientation because a lot of the chronic illness issues that people are facing now, and particularly I would say women in their thirties, forties, fifties are showing up with a lot of hormonal issues, a lot of um, general endocrine issues, things like hypothyroidism, autoimmune stuff, which would be the Hashimoto's, fibromyalgia, Sjogren's disease, those kinds of issues. A lot of that stuff is complicated and it's, it's still substantially dismissed by the traditional medical community. So right there, there's a huge invalidation that goes on. And unfortunately, with it being women's diseases, even though men get all of those diseases too, we tend to face a little bit more of that. And we're also expected to go on doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing, whether it's running a household, managing children, going to work. Yeah. There is a lot of grief about not being able to be full force about all of those things, whether it's missing events with your family and friends because you're really exhausted on Friday night and now you really need to go to bed at 9 p.m. instead of start getting dressed to go out at 9 p.m. <laughs> or it is taking time off from work and then you don't have vacation time because you've used it all up being sick or you can't have children or a million other things that are potential losses associated with that. Any disease that has any disfiguring element may make us fearful about dating, sexuality, intimacy. We want our bodies to be perfect. We're taught that that's what they're supposed to be. And illness really destroys that. And it takes time to adjust to that, that image and that reality of experience. Yeah. And then aside from that, dealing with physically, there's also grief that can show up in the physical body. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. It's quite well established at this point that trauma, particularly trauma endured by children, over time usually results in some sort of physical illness. So there is a big study you may have heard of. It's called the ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. It's a 10-question scale. You can find it online, all caps, ACE. It was conducted by uh, Kaiser in San Diego with probably about 10,000 people. 
they were noticing some patterns among people who had also reported trauma in their medical histories. And what we found is that people who grew up with childhood abuse, um, suicide loss, homicide loss, divorce, um, a mother that was that was beaten or other forms of intimate partner violence, those children grow up to have trauma stored in their bodies and it often manifests in autoimmune disorders, earlier diagnoses of diabetes, um, triggering of autoimmune conditions, triggering of hormonal irregularities, pain disorders particularly, and of course addictions and eating disorders show up. So a lot of things have their roots in trauma. We think we use the phrase, the body keeps the score, which is derived from Bessel van der Kolk, who's a famous traumatologist. That's really true. So it's not that I have a hammer and so everything is a nail, but when people come to me, they've kind of started to figure out usually that probably something about their bodies is linked to their emotional condition. And so they're seeking help with that. Yeah. Well, I've always believed that too. I always believe mind, body, spirit, it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you can heal the trauma, uh, your physical body can heal too. Yes and no. So I've seen it happen. So yes, yes, I, I believe it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But what is your no? Tell me about the no part. (laughs) My, My no is that just believing it's possible doesn't always result in complete healing. There are diseases disorders that have a genetic component so we have environmental factors we have traumas we have genetics and you can heal a lot of the manifestations of disease but for example i have type 2 diabetes and one half of my family all died of complications of early type 2 diabetes i can't fix that history right but i can fix everything else physically, emotionally, to the point where there's limited to no manifestation of the disease on a lab test, right? So we can't erase our histories. We can't erase our our genetic inheritance, yeah. but we can do a lot to clear that out. Mm-hmm. And I do believe in miracle healings also. I mean, I think they happen sometimes. People just have spontaneous remission. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. I believe in that too. And you, it's said on your website um, that you use some unique different methods also. Like I remember, so you're talking now about like miracle healing and, you know, believing in also the emotional aspect of it. Talk about some of the other things that you do that are a little bit different and outside of the box from others. Okay. Um, So just to preface this, obviously I'm not a medical doctor and I am not a spiritual healer. Um, what I do bring in, though, is holistic and integrative work and a lot of nutrition science and movement-related things, So, and, and Buddhist psychology as well. So I've been studying those things, and my family was um, doing a lot of things with dietary stuff, and I learned transcendental meditation when I was 10 years old. I bring in all of those sorts of things, because I really don't think that Western medicine is complete enough for the kinds of illness that we experience. And it's miraculous. It saved my life a couple of times. It saved a lot of other lives. If you're in crisis, go for the Western medicine. A lot of these things are spiritual disconnections. So I bring in 
aspects of spirituality. Many times people are having a spiritual disconnection, which is really kind of a, a global empathy disconnection. And so our disconnection from other people can contribute to our illness. I may look at doing things with Ericksonian hypnotherapy, specific types of meditation. I may provide education about elements of nutrition that are missing or that could be altered or could affect mental health or mental illness. So I really, if I was gonna put a label on it, would say it's holistic and integrative psychology as a mm -hmm. practice. Okay, I love that. Yeah. And um, recently you posted nearly 50% of adults have a chronic illness in which mm -hmm. most are invisible. Um, and this can cause anxiety and trauma. Can you talk about this and some of the ways that we can overcome or cope with this uh, and be compassionate to others when they're dealing mm -hmm. with it? Yeah, I posted that um, recently because it's there are any number of weekly, daily, monthly recognitions of various diseases. And there actually is a chronic illness awareness week that comes around every year. So the deal is that around half of adults have one or more chronic illnesses. Those ranged from the big stuff like cancer all the way on down to, oh, you have a little high blood pressure and you take a pill every day and it has almost no impact on your life basically. Mm -hmm. But we tend to idolize the perfect healthy person. Mm -hmm. Half of us aren't there. And so <laughs> we have to be mindful of that because the various illnesses that people have will contribute to anxiety, depression, sometimes to addiction. Uh, people are self-medicating, contribute to a lot of anxiety, just something like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is hypothyroidism, can make you look depressed, can make you look anxious if your medication is not perfectly calibrated. And a lot of other symptoms of those sorts of things. Epic levels of fatigue, uh, so many people with pain issues, you don't see any of that. They may report it, but for example, if you were to look at me, you'd say, oh, she looks perfectly healthy. Maybe a little <laughs> pale today, but healthy, right? <laughs> <laughs> the reality is I'm a chronic illness patient and there's nothing visible about that other than at the moment, the tape on my ankle that I injured, right? Most of the mm -hmm. time there's zero visibility around it. We need to be mindful that when people say they're tired or they're in pain, they're probably about three times as bad as they say they are. Most people mm. are struggling really hard, particularly younger chronic pain patients. They will try and push through. People also want to have the life they desire, right? We all do. Getting out and doing activities. Maybe they're having a good day. We need to remember that most of their days are not necessarily good days. And just because they were capable of doing something one day, that doesn't mean they're capable of it seven days a week. So we can help by being mindful, aware, asking questions, even if we're not seeing anything, being attuned to other people. You know, if I'm really short with you, there's a decent chance that my ankle is killing me right now, for example. So instead of calling you a... Uh a bitch we would <laughs> have try to have some compassion and yeah ask are you how are you feeling today exactly what we can do also all of us i prefer have a real answer for that instead of saying i'm good i'm fine mm -hmm. say True. you know i'm pretty good but i gotta tell you you know that thing i'm having with my right wrist is flaring up today and it's really annoying and it's kind of limiting 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we yeah. would all start to have more answers like that, we'd have deeper connections. We'd have mm -hmm. deeper awareness yeah. and we would all be able to be a little more mindful that it's not just the elderly or people who use wheelchairs who have various levels of ability and disability. I think that comes with acceptance of what you have going on and uh, no letting go of the concern about what other people think being a downer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, speaking of that, like how do you, even with grief of a loved one or what we're talking about with the chronic invisible illness, how do, how does one stop feeling like a burden? Yeah. Cause I, even for someone grieving a loved one, they'll go, Oh gosh, I'm being annoying. It's been more than three months or something. And it's like, well, no, you know, who, who says there's a timeline? Mm -hmm. I think we, frankly, we need a, a societal change around that. Oh, but yeah. um, what I would say about that and what I try to educate people about is in addition to it being a nonlinear process, there really is no time frame. We have this false idea that a year is the appropriate time to be grieving. And it's mm -hmm. true that there are in many cultures rituals that coincide with a year. And it does tend to take around a year for the most through anniversaries, special events, holidays, and, and really feeling that absence quite acutely. But we need to be open to the idea of allowing ourselves to be as we actually are. We feel really pressured to all of a sudden bounce back. If you work for someone else, you probably have a maximum of five days of bereavement leave for losing your spouse or a parent or a child. There is no way you have stopped grieving in five days. No. There's probably no way you're even remotely competent to be back at work if it's a work mm -hmm. that requires any sort of planning, organization, strategy. Maybe you could go back to, you know, something where we should also recognize that all of us go through the grief experience that sometimes most likely go through it many, many times. Therefore, it's not an abnormal experience. Being sad is also not a pathology. It's normal yeah. to go through periods of sadness, particularly when we have a loss. And there's sort of a, you know, cult of toxic positivity, I would say. Mm -hmm. I am an eternal optimist. Absolutely. And I get sad. And that is okay. Yeah. Totally. Very healthy. Yeah. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> well, process. well, you sound, the, the words you're using to describe it are, is, are very healthy. But I'm sure it's another thing to actually continue to practice it. Daily. Um, I would say for me, it is very well practiced, very well educated. It's a priority and I do all of the things to support being well. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's real. Yeah. You seem like it seems real for you. Yeah. So with the compassion, Eden, that you heard, um, yeah. So Eden heard, I did not get a chance to listen to it, but Eden was talking to me about a podcast she listened to, and we thought this would be a good question. So we've heard that less than 10% of the population has a high level of compassion. They were estimating 8%. Hmm. 
Um, most people don't get to a high level unless something traumatic happens in their lives. Do you agree with this? And how can we start to shift this? And we talked a little bit about that. So just what are, what is your take on this? I haven't seen or read that study. It sounds strikingly low. I think yeah. it's possible though. Um, I would say that people in general are strongly self-interested which can result in lower compassion for other people. We also, particularly in, in Western culture, have a very strong drive and orientation around doing and achieving at all, you know, regardless of expense or cost. And a lot of times what is lost is compassion for others who are in a different place in their process or whose bodies are not as strong or whose minds are not as strong. Um, to cultivate more compassion. I'm really fond of Buddhist practices. I'm fond of mindfulness meditation, compassion meditations. Um, and I think also just exposure to things. One of the things that I think is terrible is that children are protected from, from grief and from illness as oh, yeah. much as they tend to be. And it tends to leave us with adults who have no idea how to handle tragedy, trauma, grief, illness. Yeah. We need to start learning those things to not be, uh, certainly not to be mocking anyone who has any of those issues, to use those things as teaching moments. Uh, so, you know, I'm thinking of a child seeing an, um, an elderly person with an injury limping along and looking kind of funny as they walk. If they find that funny, I would, as a parent, take it as a teaching moment to explain what made their body be that way, how aging can work, and why we should be more compassionate and more patient in time with that person, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would like to share a story. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, like, should I, should I share? Sure. We were going to possibly talk about that and she yeah. just introed it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you know that I'm a medium. So I work with people who uh, have crossed over and okay. a lot of them lately have been people mm -hmm. who die from overdose and su suicide. Yeah. One that recently happened, um, the mother had a reading with me and her son had passed away just days before because of a fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. And um, it's sometimes hard to tell the person I'm working with the truth that's coming through because it's pretty harsh, but she was okay with it, hearing it, wanted to hear um, so basically her son came through and, and explained why, uh, he could not heal, um, this, his addictions and he could, he, for years he tried when he was here mm -hmm. and nothing worked. Um, and then he was easily able to just come through with, to identify the issues. And one of them was just, was, I'm trying to be vague though. So it's not giving away someone's story that's not mine to tell, but, um, it's just that he had two traumas in his life, but she forgot about them. She not only forgot, but she, it calculate like how, how traumatic it could have been and how much it could have negatively affected him. Mm -hmm. he, she, she did not take that into account. 
and and either did he um and either did the people he worked with to try to heal this <laughs> they never went that far back mm. and um so they discovered he he came through and you know shared what it was and um one of the things that he said was when i was a child and i went through these things mom you enabled me um and you coddled me in the way where i was not taught how to cope with mm -hmm. a negative emotion mm -hmm. um and it, she admitted to it she said oh my gosh i did do that because when when he went through that situation all i wanted to do was make him feel better so mm -hmm. i would go take him for ice cream and and uh, ask him you know what do you want to do and let's do fun and you know just try to take away the mm -hmm. and so when he older it piled on and and he got to that point where he was he was severely depressed but he and he didn't know how how to process these mm -hmm. emotions so um it kind of starts with the parent <laughs> um that kind of i think it does mm -hmm. with but they don't know either she only knew what she knew um so it wasn't to blame her but it was a fact and and it was it was good for her to hear she was happy to hear it in the way of now mm -hmm. i have answers but hard to uh, forgive herself now. Right. Because I had heard a lot of stories of the kid had like such a great, you know, positive life, but he just had like a moment of rebellion. So sometimes it isn't the parents, but that it often starts with the parents. Your opinions, Gretchen? <laughs> <laughs> I too have heard a lot of these really tragic stories. And I think yeah. the whole the whole issue of fentanyl is is really really painful because there is a lot of of kind of accidental overdose situations that have been happening that i think are preventable but we do overall need to build greater resilience into our children and i love the idea that childhood should be sort of this fairy tale happy place where there are no bad memories there's only joyous and fun and free memories but the reality is if you don't have difficult experiences and learn how to deal with difficult experiences, ranging anything from hurt feelings to parental anger to illness or death, you have no idea how to actually deal with those things effectively when you are on your own. And a lot of times what happens with people is that they do find drugs or alcohol or other ways of escaping their feelings. And so I think that that is at the risk of enraging all the parents in the audience. I think it's a disservice to children to not expose them in a managed way to the realities of life. And I would say I had parents who were not conscious of that, but they exposed me to all of those realities of life anyway. While it is difficult and it was traumatic in many ways, I have some of the greatest resilience of mm, I've ever yeah. met because very early on, I was taken to see aging relatives who were bedridden and dying, people in, in the hospital who were dying. There was no sugarcoating, you know, Barbara yeah. has lung cancer because she smoked two packs a day. Mm, that's that's a lot of information for a seven-year-old, <laughs> <laughs> but... 
it really was something where I didn't believe that it was all just happy times. And I don't, I don't think that's a realistic perspective on life. Similarly, kids need to learn things that are practical and not fun. Yeah. Totally. Matter of fact. Yes. I, I'm, I'm extremely practical. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so big on non-sheltering. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we, I used to do that. I used to coddle my kids and, and rescue them when they were mm-hmm. little because I had the opposite growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have the awareness that I was doing it and that mm-hmm. it was harming them. <laughs> um, and then my older one happened to tell me later when she realized it, you can't keep doing this. And I had to make some changes and, and, you know, it's for the better, so much better, but. Yeah. My, my experience in starting to shift people's awareness around that is for not, not exactly joyously embracing all of the difficulties of life, but gratitude around someone being willing and able to talk about it and to take them through their emotional experience of starting to know these things people would rather that we show up during difficult times than to be completely sheltered from them. We always know on some level that something is wrong. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then they feel lied to if it's not Mm -hmm. discussed. Yeah. Yeah. And it also helps them, I think, to become emotionally intelligent. Yes. Which is so important. Definitely. Okay. All right. Long discussion. We could go on and on about that. I wanted to know from you. Also, you are a health psychologist. What is that? I am. So health and medical psychologists are a subspecialty of psychologists. Mm -hmm. And what we deal with significantly is acute illness or traumatic uh, trauma based illness, chronic illness, invisible illness, Um, A lot of times it's behaviorally oriented. So for example, I work a lot with endocrine disorders, including diabetes. Um, There's a lot of emotional issues related to getting diagnosed, to treatment. Um, I would work with what's happening that you are not compliant with your insulin regimen, or how can I help you deal with the losses associated with your particular form of cancer? how can I educate you or support you with the grief that almost inevitably goes along with having had a heart attack or stroke? So all of those things are typical health psychology things. Mm-hmm. I would say I veer a lot more lately, particularly um, I started with hormonal endocrine women's issues. I see a lot of people with really complex, sometimes mystery illnesses with it, where they've gone through a process of seeing 20, 30, 50 doctors and alternative healing practitioners and still have illness. And so the frustration, the grief, the rage over all of that and having to adapt to something they don't even have an understanding of or a name for is kind of my zone of health psychology. That's so important. I've, I haven't heard of that before, but I mean, I could, I could think of a handful of people that could use that kind of help. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it, it's, um, there are definitely, there are even further specialties. So there are oncology specialist uh, psychologists who work with cancer patients. I've encountered a couple of other people who do things that are diabetes focused. Many have um, something like an autoimmune focus. 
<laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's amazing and great that there there are people like you out there, because I just think that it is a stigma, just like so many other things where people won't even tell anyone that they have it. You know, they won't, they're like, I have so many people that are like, oh, you're like the third person that knows that I have been going through this for five years, you know, and it's like, they feel like they'll be looked upon as weak or broken, you know, and so I, I feel so, so much happy. of that. Now we're, we're getting this out there to more people that this mm. is available. And then you also help those dealing with PCOS. And I yes. think that also has a stigma needs to be known about more what has been your personal journey with it and what has led you to focusing on this too first of all what is it what is polycystic ovary syndrome it affects up to 21 percent of people with a uterus it is the primary cause of female infertility about 75 percent of women dealing with infertility have pcos as an underlying condition so it's a hormonal and metabolic syndrome has specific diagnostic criteria related to not having periods, having infertility, having some masculinizing presentations. A lot of trans men are actually um, grateful for PCOS symptoms that help them actually naturally become more masculine appearing. It is a disorder that I have. I have probably a, a moderate case of it. Um, and I found that Nobody dealt with it uh, in a medical office. It was like, here's your birth control pills, bye-bye. I discovered that there was a lot of overlap with mental health issues. So huge incidence of eating disorders, of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, seven times higher rate of suicide. Um, so it is something that is a real battle for a lot of people. And it is really under-recognized and under-treated by the medical community. It receives one ten-thousandth of one percent of the National Institute of Health funding for research. And it's, which is in and of itself, I think one of the most shocking facts I know. Um, so I said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to focus on this in my practice. I dug into research because I was trying to figure out how do I help? And ultimately, I drafted a 1,200-page book, which I thought was maybe a little <laughs> bit too much for the average consumer. Um, but I wrote a book called The PCOS Mood Cure. And in it, I described the symptoms, um, self-help approaches through nutrition, mindful movement, supplements, that meditation, that sort of thing. And I focus on this because there's a huge piece that is really missing, which is the mental health piece. And we see a lot of people with a lot of mood disorders. And so I think it's something where by raising awareness of it, which I do a lot of, um, people will come to me and they'll say, I had no idea, but you just put it all together for me. All these things I've been dealing with, I, I think I have PCOS. Hmm. And then I can point them where to go get diagnosed and that sort of thing, because it has a lot of long-term negative health implications like early onset type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and other things. So it's really, it's a significant disorder, but it's really not adequately addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that all of those things about it. So yeah. thank you for that. And what, how long did your book end up being? <laughs> I cut it down to about, I think it's about 325 pages, the last what? 25 pages. <laughs> Editing it, what must have been like a challenge. <laughs> the last, yeah, 
the last 25 pages are kind of an index to all the supplements that people may use for PCOS. Uh Um, It's a really information rich book and it's something I feel so passionately about it. I keep the price of the ebook version on Amazon at $3.99. So you Uh can't sacrifice one, one latte to read this and you think you need it, then (laughs) I can't help. Can you say the title again so that people It's can called The up? PCOS Mood Cure. Okay. Your guide to ending the emotional roller coaster. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Okay, you also have another book? I do. Okay, and is it called Moving Through Grief? Yes. Okay. Um and that's based on acceptance and commitment therapy. Correct. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us about the book and um what is that commitment therapy? Sure. ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, is one of the most studied and empirically validated scientific approaches to a lot of psychological and psychosocial issues. So um, in applying it to grief, it references back to what I was saying about values and goals. We start with, where are you in this moment? work into what are your values? Perhaps, you know, my values might be education, spirituality, health. Your values might be family, education, and money, for example. We want to do really individualized values assessment and start creating goals so that a person can move forward or returning back to what they think of as their most desirable life in a really custom Customized kind of way. And the book contains a lot of exercises for doing this yourself. I'm, even though I'm a psychologist and I love when people come to me and pay me for my services, I also really love the idea of getting started on things yourself. Not everyone who has a loss needs a grief therapist. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do. So it's a, it's a somewhat systematized way of approaching these things. It works for any kind of loss, not just the loss of a person. It could be loss of a job or you lost your house in a fire or something like that. But all of those losses require kind of re-examining yourself and realigning yourself with what you actually want now that you don't have this significant thing in your life. So that's what the book is about. And then how, how can they find that one? That one is available through all the major resellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I don't even know who else. Small bookstores do stock it if you ask them. Uh huh. Awesome. Okay. And you have those two. Those two are your main books. Those are my two current books. Yes, I'm sure I will write some more books, but yeah. they're not here yet. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been amazing, and um, I think it's something different than we've ever had on before, and it's going to help so many people. So we really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Gretchen. And can you tell everyone how they can follow you, find you? Sure. Thanks for for having me on. I'm I'm glad it's something different for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I can be found at um, PCOS Psychology on Facebook. I have PCOS Wellness on Instagram. If you would like to track me down, uh, just look up my name. Um, Ask Dr. Gretchen is another keyword you can look at and you'll find me all over the place. Okay, wonderful. Yes, and I hope that everyone enjoys and please send us feedback. If you have any questions for her, we can forward them to her as well. And thank you everyone for listening.